Hello, everybody. Um, I got a special podcast for you guys today, but it requires a bit of an introduction. The first podcast I ever recorded was with a gentleman by the name of Fred Keel. Fred Keel was the author of Return on Character, uh, the study that actually proved out that character outperforms over time. And Fred and his company and team joined up with me in the early days of Rock uh, Investments to an analyze the current market the CEOs, CEOs that are currently in the market running companies, utilizing the skills and lessons learned from their book. Um, Fred grew to be a good friend and someone I admired greatly during those time we got to work together. And sadly, he passed away uh, on so September 24th, 2022, uh, a few months after this podcast was recorded. I wanted just to read you a little something I wrote on Fred. And, uh, but before I do so, I just, that, there's a photo next to this, uh, to this little uh, tribute. And it's a picture of Fred in white overalls in a red Hawaiian shirt and a yellow undershirt with red, red glasses. And he, he's got uh, the rock logo, the heart logo pinned to his overalls. And it was taken just as he was entering the hospital for, for this surgery that he needed to have done, which unfortunately resulted in his passing. But he's got the biggest smile on his face. And man, um, it just warms my heart to, to see the photo. For those that you are watching, you'll be able to see this. For those that are listening, uh, unfortunately, it won't. Uh, but but I, I wrote this about Fred. Fred was our patron saint of character that made us all feel good, gave us courage to try, and a belief that good can win in the end. He was the author of our cause, and for that will forever be the cornerstone of our efforts to affirm and promote character in the world. Enjoy this podcast um, with Fred Keogh. I was honored uh, to be able to, I think, be a part of his last interview. He was a very, very special man and near and dear to my heart. Welcome to Return on Character Podcast. I'm Dan Cooper, founder of Rock Investments, and co-hosting with me today is Jess Larson, founder of Greystoke Investments. It's a great honor to introduce Fred. And Fred is one of those individuals that Providence, <clears throat> or whatever you might want to call it, led me to because it was, it was in a moment of frustration that I was sitting in my chair at, at home and I Googled, uh, does anybody care about character anymore in the Google bar? And I up popped this book called Return on Character, published by Harvard Business Review, written by a guy named Fred Keel. And uh, I was so overwhelmed with the existence of this book uh, that I literally, within a few minutes, tracked down his company, which is KRW International, which has developed an entire uh, business around helping companies um, develop character within its organization, uh, identify and measure it, um, that uh, I, I called them and left them a message uh, telling them that I'm trying to build an investment strategy that invests on the base of the character and would love to talk to them. Uh, because, you know, when I, I, I originally did this strategy 20 years ago, and I didn't think anybody else cared about it. Well, 
I found the man that actually wrote the book on character. And today we have Fred Keel with us, and it's a great honor uh, to have him with us. Fred, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you very much, Dan. I'm thrilled to be here. Fred, why don't you go ahead and explain to us the basis of your book, how you came to write a book on character. Okay, well, it's kind of a long story. It goes back uh, almost 20 years ago. I was sitting around talking with one of my clients who at that time was an executive vice president of American Express. He was in charge of their financial planning field force, which it's been was spun off as Ameriprise today, but at that time it was part of American Express. And we both were aware that over the years we'd seen that there seemed to be a correlation, if not or a more direct connection between the character of the individuals that we were, we all knew in the business world and the bottom line and the results they got. It just seemed like high character people got better business results. So the more we talked about that, and at that time, uh, Dan Goldman's book on emotional intelligence just was mm -hmm. had its popularity, and we both knew Dan, and we we thought that you know Dan's onto something, but we think there's a deeper form of intelligence that emotional intelligence and all the influencing skills rest upon, and that's something we ended up calling calling moral intelligence. We actually met with Dan and talked that over with him, and he agreed that. Uh, if that made sense, uh, and it actually endorsed our, our book. We then did a, a lot of background research. We figured we probably weren't the first guys that had ever thought about this concept of moral intelligence. And of course, it goes back to ancient Greeks and all of that. Yeah. So we, for a couple of years, we hired a researcher who just scoured the literature and tried to find out everything there was written about moral, morality and moral development and all of that. And they got us into the neurosciences where we discovered the power of habit, and it also got us into the field of cultural anthropology, much to our hmm. surprise. Well, there's a book that was published in, I think, 18 or 1989 called Human Universals. It was published by a, a cultural anthropologist professor. And basically what it is is just an encyclopedia of the behaviors that are common to all human societies around the globe. It's what people in every culture teach their children. And it hmm. turns out, if you look at all this list of behaviors, there are things like telling the truth and keeping promises and owning up to your own mistakes and being responsible for your personal choices and, and showing forgiveness and compassion, kindness to other people, especially those in your tribe and your family. And as we looked at all of those, we reasoned that, you know, there's a theme here. You can pick out themes. And we came up with four themes, uh, integrity, responsibility, forgiveness, and compassion. And we realized that if these are universal, that all human societies teach them, they really are moral principles that these behaviors rest under the umbrella of these uh, moral principles. And that's how we came to write this book called Moral Intelligence. Um, we came up with a leadership model. It was based on these four moral, universal moral principles and, and uh, interviewed a lot of people that we um, respected as senior people and uh, wrote this book called Moral Intelligence. It was published by Wharton Business School Publishing. And uh, 
it's and it's in seven or eight different languages. Actually, it's in the second edition. It's still doing well in uh, many parts of the world. Um, but um, about six months after that book was published, I had a call from a, um, a reviewer, and he said, "Fred, he said I need to give you a lesson in economics." And I said, hmm. "Oh, yeah, what's that?" He said. Well, he said, you know, I read your book and all that soft stuff you talk about. I know you think that's important, and I didn't expect that because you're a psychologist. But let me tell you, that's not what accounts for for this nice to have, but it's icing on the cake. Because the only thing that really creates value is a good business model. If you have a good business model, you'll make a ton of money, especially if you happen to have a tailwind. And um, you can attract, that way you can attract all the good talent that you want from making a lot of money and all that nice stuff you say is so important will kind of come along for the ride, usually. He said, even if it doesn't, as long as management stays legal, he said, that's all that's really required. But he said, everything you think is so important, he said, is just icing on the cake. It's not really, doesn't contribute any value. And he said, and besides, he said, I read your book. He said, you make all these incredible claims of how important that stuff is, but you don't have any data to support your claim. All you did was talk to a lot of people who agreed with you. <laughs> well, I got off the phone and I was pretty discouraged for about 10 days or two weeks, thinking that I had devoted my entire career to icing on the cake. <laughs> more I thought about it, the more it seemed to me that, that my experience was that it is an important factor, but this guy was right. I don't have any data. So that set me on the mission to get the data. I thought I'd. I know a lot of CEOs. I bet you they'd be glad to cooperate in a research study, especially, you know, if we find that this is really important, then it's something that we can take to business schools and say, hey, you need to add this to your curricula. And uh, well, business, well, CEOs were eager to sign up for this. So I optimistically thought it would take me two years. It ended up taking seven years with <laughs> Wow. Have the, have the book ready for publication. But, um, over that seven years, we signed up 121 CEOs, ended up with complete data on 84 of them. And complete data meant that we had um, conducted a random survey of a survey of randomly selected employees mm -hmm. asking them questions about the CEO and the senior team around these four moral principles. How often do they show integrity? How do they tell the truth, keep their promises? Often do they demonstrate responsibility, <laughs> owning up to their own mistakes, uh, expressing concern for the common good. And then often do they demonstrate forgiveness towards other people? You know, to how do they react when people make mistakes? And, for, and finally, do they show compassion? Do they, do they just treat people as people? Do they care for, for the workforce as human beings? And we, you know, we ended up with over about eight and a half thousand randomly selected employee surveys uh, within seven years. And wow. so that allowed us to identify those uh, CEOs and senior teams that the employee, their employees thought that they were just terrific people to work for. They were high character in all four of those dimensions. And there were <clears throat> another group of CEOs that scored very low on those, those dimensions. Now, what was really interesting is that well, a lot of it was really interesting, but what was really interesting is that both group, both CEOs who employees rated them very highly and those CEOs whose employees rated them very lowly, they both rated themselves highly. 
they both thought of themselves as being people with high character. Meaning, meaning the CEOs that were rated poorly by the employees thought of themselves as actually having high character? And absolutely. Their intentions were good. And when it was part of our research agreement is that we would show them the data that we collected from their employees, give them a report. And when we gave a report to the high-scoring CEOs, they thought, yeah, that makes sense. I kind of figured I'd score that way. Whereas we showed this same report to those that scored low by their employees, they were astonished and they were horrified. They were, mm. they were distressed. They didn't, this is not how I see myself. How can they view me? How can they view me as a person who lies, or who cheats, who doesn't tell the truth, who treats them like objects? You know, they were just horrified by that and wanted to do something about it. So. Fred, was it hard to get CEOs to sign up? And do you think that all the CEOs that you signed up to be able to uh, run your evaluations, did they assume kind of the, that they would fare very well? And, and, yeah. and that's why they agreed to, to, to you guys coming in and doing your review. I think they were um, attracted by the higher purpose of this. The higher purpose was if we can show what's important that, and that character is really important in, in uh, producing business results, then it's something that business schools should be teaching. Right. And business schools teach ethics courses, but that's a head exercise and it doesn't have much impact on people. But if we can can identify the methodology for helping leaders learn how to have better character habits, um, that'll be the real secret. Well, anyway, CEOs were inspired and eager to sign up on that. But we also asked each CEO that was in the study to nominate two or three other CEOs. So there was sort of a social desirability aspect to this is that, you, you know, they'd email somebody, say, I participated in the study and, and I recommended you, you'll be getting a call. And we sent them a nice engraved invitation and all of that. And, you know, yeah. made a big deal out of it. And uh, who who wouldn't want to respond if you know another CEO that respects you that that recommended you for a study in integrity and, and, and character study? So, so I was able to kind of you're able to grow through their through the collective network and get participants to to join the right. review. We had no problem getting yeah. people to sign up. We did have problems sometimes getting past HR departments because they didn't want their employees surveyed. And so that's why we signed up 121. We only got data on 84 because things happen. Sometimes CEOs change jobs or quit or whatever, sure. but uh, we ran yeah. on to HR resistance. Well, I've got one more question for Fred, and I want to give uh, Jess an opportunity to ask his because he's he's just recently finished your book and, and, uh, and, and found it incredibly interesting. But um, you know, one one of the questions is, is were you ever concerned that all this research would yield that it doesn't matter, that uh, character doesn't matter, and 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 how did you how did you manage yourself through that, uh, and and then tell us tell us about the you know the time when you know when it when you added it all up and and you got the results. Uh, what was that like? I, I'm a, a data wonk. I love, love data. So I was constantly just curious. And uh, 
luckily we had a um, an advisory board made up of a couple of professors of accounting from Duke University, so they were they were there to give me moral support. But but they you know they're scientists also. It was an open question for them too. Once we got up to a respectable sample, we had I think had complete data sets on a little over forty CEOs. We ran the numbers, and holy cow, we were just amazed that the high character CEOs and their senior teams were bringing in almost four times more to the bottom line than those of the, the those CEOs and senior teams who were rated low. We sent that data to our to the Duke University professors and said, you know, Shane, you know, look at this. I must be missing something. Am I, what am I smoking? Because these results look pretty good. And he got back and he said, no, your analysis is fine and the results are, are there and they're accurate. But he said, your sample's small. He said, you need to, you need to get more. So this was about three years into the study. So I took a big sign and said, okay, keep, keep truck, keep plugging along. And uh, once we got up to 85 or 84, um, David says, we ran the numbers again and they were even stronger than they were at, at 44. It was almost five times more to the bottom line. So it held up. And then we did a really in-depth analysis. We looked, are there other factors that could be accounting for this? Like maybe it's at that time, there was a lot of sort of discussion around the importance of religion and religious leaders were thought to be more honest and better business people than those that weren't religious. And well, we had gathered data about that, about people's religious practices. So we were able to sort these 84 into two groups, those 10 or 11 CEOs who had weekly consistent religious practices in their lives versus those at the other end of the scale who never had entered a, a place of worship in their entire life. And then we looked at their financial results, no differences. <laughs> so we sorted then on based on, on political preferences, because we'd asked each of those CEOs to identify who they had voted for in the past in all of the presidential elections since they had been able to vote. So we were able to identify, I think, 11 hardcore Republicans that had voted Republican at every election and 12 Democrats, the other end, who had voted nothing but Democrats. And we looked at their financial results. No differences. <laughs> wow. Um, we looked at other factors like uh, childhood happy homes versus those who are unhappy homes and, and uh, looked sort of them. There were no differences there. Of course, we sorted by education. The MBAs and the PhDs didn't get any better results than the high school dropouts. So we couldn't find any explanation in all that data that we collected or we sorted by at the extremes of those that data and looked at financial results. It was always nothing until you sort by, by character, by how the employees viewed these people as treating them? Do they tell us the truth? Do they keep it promises? Do they care for us as people? Do they treat us well when we make mistakes, not shame us, blame us? For those that were rated very high on those versus those that were rated very low, there was this huge impact on productivity and on profitability, five times more. And of course, a big bump difference in workforce engagement and uh, actually a lower risk profile, fewer lawsuits. That sort of thing. So, yeah. so that was the data. So the thing that I regret is that I never kept the name and the number of the reviewer that called me. <laughs> so 
because seven years later, they give him a call, but I couldn't remember who it was. So, well, he certainly deserves some credit, and you deserve some credit for uh, listening and 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 being humble about it and trying to figure out how to answer the question he asked. Jess, turning it over to you. What do you? What do you have any questions on your side? Before I ask my couple of questions, I just want to confirm that I'm reading Table B four in the book correctly, because the way I read it, Fred, it looks like if you add up across all these different company sizes, that the the total return on assets across these different organizations, different industries, they were doing kind of like 5.2% return on assets total, but that the self-focused CEOs were doing about 1.9% and that the virtuoso mm -hmm. CEOs, these ones with the high moral habits, the, the character, that they were doing 9.3% return on assets. Am I reading that correctly? Right. Yep. To yes. me, that's yeah. incredible, especially when you go from companies that sub 500 employees over to the like 10,000 plus employee range and then it yeah, shows up in these right. different areas. And um, I guess for me, it's fun to to actually see the data. You talk about being a data wonk, like everybody has opinions, yeah. right? Um, it's just so much easier to right. share them with some empirical evidence and a, and a reasonable but, sample size to back it up. Well, right. I, I'm a person that I don't particularly like debate or, or conflict and you know, I thought I'd better write this book, but I'm going to put all the data in there because if you, if you don't like what I've had to say in the book, well, do your own analysis. Here's the yeah. data. <laughs> um, well, I, I wish I could remember who said this, but I love the quote. They said, uh, in God, we trust all else bring data. <laughs> so, um, yes, <laughs> I love that. Uh, okay. So I, I think my first question is, there's a term that you've said today that shows up a few places in the book. Um, and I'd love to know how you define it or how you think about it. You talk about seeing people as people, not as objects. Can you talk about what that means to you or how you define that? Um, well, sure. I mean, it's it's what high character people do uh, because high character people have their heads and their hearts connected. They're not just head people. Head people fail to see the whole human being, and they themselves typically are not very integrated as human beings. And uh, unfortunately, that's a big part of Western culture is uh, masculinity is very much a head kind of posture to have. And it's, you know, even our culture, we think of women as being on the heart side and they're the soft things like compassion and forgiveness and all that. And men, they're the hard driving, they're the ones that, that uh, tell the truth and the integrity and and responsibility and owning up and all of that sort of thing. Well, the whole, the real integrated human being embraces both of those sides. When you have only half of it, you only have a half a human being. And unfortunately, that's what's really defined capitalism for us. Capitalism itself as a system is amoral. It doesn't have any moral um, sides to it. It's who practices capitalism that brings the morality to it. And unfortunately, our capitalism has been promoted mostly by a male-dominated way of thinking, which does, well, in fact, it was Milton Friedman who said the only purpose of business is to make profit for the shareholders. Well, that is a pretty narrow view of what the purpose of business is. And if business it doesn't exist to help better make the world a better place, it's not going to exist in a few years. I mean, 
you know, we, we got huge problems in society that we need to face. Man, it takes the whole, whole human being to do that. So, you know, you, well, it makes me think, you know, there's, you think about one of the areas of business that is so where, where manipulation and objectification is so tempting for folks. It's, it's sales, right? And, uh, there's a sales trainer, Jeffrey Gittimer, who writes this, writes a number of books. And I like one of his quotes where he says, all else being equal. People prefer to do business with people they like. All else not being equal, people still prefer to do business with people they like. And when somebody, when somebody's like actually thinks about me like a real life human being instead of a walking ATM machine, uh, that's so magnetic. How, like, how easy is it for me to like them when I, when I believe that they're not putting their commission check above my needs, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I just had an experience last night. I was trying to, I thought this free app that identifies plants. And I thought I'd got plants in my garden and I don't know what to, whether they're weeds or flowers. So I downloaded it. And then, you know, and then it gives me the big pitch to, to subscribe just for something for $39 a year. Well, I don't want it. I just want this app. There wasn't any way to do it. And I felt, you jerks, <laughs> you're just all about you. You're not about me at all. And uh, so I ended up deleting the app and got it off my cell phone. So, so you know, but sales, um, we're doing a big research project right now with the Society for Strategic Account Management. It's a nonprofit organization with all the big companies, big sales companies, the sales departments of big companies are, are in it. And, and our purpose is to help them through research to to nobleize uh, sales as a profession. And there's a whole hot subject in the whole sales world now about human to human contacts and human to human interaction. And there's a real awareness of the big companies and the real professional salespeople that this is not about making money and, and all of that. There's the focus. It's about helping them solve their needs and helping them solve their customers' needs your customers, customers, and it's all about character. And so we're doing research to find out <laughs> what specific character behaviors are the ones that drive that kind of successful professional sales uh, interaction. So uh, I love it. Well, maybe one more question before I hand it back to Dan here. Um, I think the only other person that I have found who has done reliable financial tracking on the value of caring about people like this is Bob Chapman and the Barry Waymiller companies and his book, Everybody Matters. I was so excited to see all those references in your book about him. And, you know, like for me, I, 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 it's very easy for me to talk to other CEOs and friends when he's like, they've tracked and shown a 23% compound annual growth rate higher than Warren Buffett's. And he's grown his revenue over yeah. $2 billion with a hundred yeah. At the time of the book, over a hundred successful business turnarounds where they buy a company, treat people well, yep. turn the company yeah. on. Can you talk about how you found, well, what do we use? Can you talk for just a minute about why Bob Chapman's stood out to you so much? Well, he stood out to me so much because of, um, of the whole culture and climate of his organization. I actually made a trip to St. Louis to visit him and all of that. And I was picked up at the airport and. And it was just totally treated like uh, the most important person on the face of the earth. <laughs> and, you know, that was just his, uh, that was the climate is that people are, are really important and everybody is treated. 
he had all kinds of employee reward programs. There was a, a red uh, convertible that got passed around that if you did something to be honored, you got to drive that red convertible for a month. <laughs> and I just saw all kinds of programs like that. Uh, and he was, he was really an inspiring you know, guy. Uh, uh, well, Dan, what does that make you think about? What does that make you want to ask Fred next? Well, I guess, I guess to me, Fred, and this is maybe just from my perspective, I mean, what you just proved, what you proved is tantamount to, you know, Einstein's theory of relativity as far as its consequence on on the world as a rule of behavior and its consequence on how on outcomes and uh the justification for why treating others with compassion uh, behaving with integrity why um, forgiveness matters these are the, it's just like these the rules of the universe that i think we've all yeah. intrinsically kind of dreamed of as being very as being true right but we all never really had the proof to back it up that it that it actually works other than maybe you feel good about doing it uh, i mean your book a uh, return on character um it was published also you should know uh, by harvard business review um you know essentially proved a, a new law in the universe for behavior and why it actually pays uh, not only intrinsically in our hearts and the way we live and how we feel, but how the the actual physical world operates and the correlation. And, um, you know, to me, it, it's, it's one of the most astounding uh, pieces of literature or studies that I've I've come across. I, uh, how how have people reacted to it, Fred? You know, I mean, here you, you bring this out. In a way, it's a little bit like Jim Collins, you know, when he wrote the book, Good to Great, he discovered all these five, level five leaders, couldn't mm -hmm. believe it. He was super excited to bring it out and it had a huge effect. Um, it, but, but I mean, then you came out with an even more pointed orientation around understanding this. How have people responded? How has that then shaped your life? You know, since the book has been published, I know KRW has been launched. I would just love to hear some highlighted stories that you've had as a as a result of uh, the publishing of this information that you collected over seven years. Well, it you know it was received very well for the eighteen months following the publication. I was flying all over. I went to Europe three times, all over Canada and the U.S. They gave forty six keynote speeches and innumerable podcasts and and other things based on the book. So there was a lot of interest. Uh, in it for the first 18 months or so, and there's been sort of a steady kind of interest in it since. But I'm not a person who very much is into self-promotion. In fact, you know, doing those keynote speeches for 18 months almost killed me. <laughs> I, I do not like to be the center of attention, so it was a, a draining experience for me. But, you know, I, I come from very, you know, challenged humble background. I grew up in a dirt poor subsistence farm uh, in western South Dakota and ended up coming to McAllister College in St. Paul and through just sheer persistence ended up getting a PhD in psychology from the University of Minnesota. 
So mm -hmm. those kind of humble beginnings, you know, to be flown to Paris to be the keynote speaker at Harvard uh, Education's uh, annual gathering of the top 250 corporate clients in mm -hmm. uh, in Europe at the Four Seasons Hotel to be the keynote speaker there was sort of a big jump from the Wonderham Country Schoolhouse that I started out wow. in many years ago. And and Harvard just had been terrific. They also had me be the keynote speaker in the U.S. at their, their uh, gathering of their best U.S. corporate clients. So it's been uh, very well received and there's continued to be interest in this. And, and the best thing that's happened is that my staff have taken this original foundational work and have um, brought it out of the laboratory and into the into the real world and created leadership development programs and assessment tools that are really powerful. In fact, you know, you're going through part of this right now yourself, Dan, is to experience it, but we're, we're really able to help companies uh, raise the bar with regard to, um, how they treat people. And if they treat people with these four character habits, the universal moral principles, if they embed that in the way the CEO and the senior team, and then if they insist that that it drives down through the organization, they become a character-based uh, culture, and workforce engagement goes up, and everything just goes up, including productivity. Of course, you know, they have to have a decent business model. There's no amount of strong character leadership that would have kept blockbusters in business. <laughs> it's a business bottle that's done. But um, if you have a business bottle that's at least, you know, similar to all the competitors, the thing that give you real competitive advantage is, is the character habits of the, of the organization, the leadership. Yeah, that's fantastic. Is there, is there something that's been frustrating for you uh, since the publishing of the book that, uh, what's your dream, uh, you know, for for the consequence of your research and, and its application in the world today? Well, I think that we're nearing a tipping point. We hear references to character. When I published the book, there was, you do a Google search on empathy and news items, and then you come up with maybe three or four, uh, you know, news references. That's when I published the book. Two years later, it's like come up with hundreds of them, and now it's thousands of them. Not only on empathy, but on character. I mean, it's, empathy is a part of character. It's sort of a little part, but the big part, big picture is character. And now character is a hot subject. There's just a recent article. I think, in fact, you sent me a link to it from Harvard Business Review about the importance of character of CEOs in the bottom line. Well, that's sort of real connection. The dream for me, and I know that we will have accomplished a lot is when Harvard Business School decides that they need to have uh, as the core of their curricula a course on habits of the heart and all of the other stuff that they teach around marketing and strategy and all of that are are the technical things that are tacked on around the circle of the, of the core curricula. So that every new class of MBA students that come in undergo the character assessment. How, what's their reputation? How are they? What's the reputation for how they treat other people? And then so that you could compute then a score for the entire class. And they have this required course that leads them through self-reflection and self-awareness and helps them become 
integrated human beings with their heads and their hearts connected and all of that. And then do a, another assessment at graduation two years later. And I bet you would see the character score for the class go from middle range up to the top range. And that, of course, would be data that would be extremely valuable for a business school to have because HR departments would swarm to try to hire their uh, graduating students at that point. And I, mm. think, I think that time is coming. It's not there yet, but we've got a couple of of uh, opportunities that we're working on with the big universities. Seems like you're implying that character is not fixed. Not fixed? Oh, you mean as a fixed item? Of course not. As a fixed part of human. So some people have character, some people don't have character. No, no, no. Yeah. Um, is, it, is it something that's malleable? Is it something that can change? Yeah, absolutely. We're all born with the propensity to want to be cared for, nurtured, told be told the truth and be treated respectfully and all of that. That's in our DNA. We want to be treated that way and we're compelled to want to treat other people that way. How we end up as adults treating other people is a matter of our habits that we've learned by the people around us. And if you happen to have people around you that have, uh, are really strong in all four of the character habits, you'll probably end up being that way yourself. But um, the, these are habits, and habits, as we know, are changeable. You just have to understand what are they and become aware of them. If you're unaware of them, um, you know, you're not going to be able to change it. But how you treat other people is not a head exercise. It's a heart exercise. It's it's what you automatically do when you're with other people. When somebody, you meet somebody for the first time, you don't stop and think, you know, oh, I must smile and I must say, hi, how are you? And I must treat them respectfully. You just automatically treat them the way that you have learned to treat people. That's your habit. And these habits are around telling the truth. It's your first response to tell the truth, to keep your promises, to own up to what's, or to do what's right. Um, is your habit to be responsible, to own up to your own mistakes and to express a concern for the common good? Is your habit first way of responding is to treat other people with kindness and forgiveness and, and curiosity when they make mistakes and then just to treat them as, as people? Jesus, how do you treat the, the checkout clerk at the grocery store compared to how you treat your, uh, your colleague or your boss? Um, high character people treat the, check out people just as well as they treat anybody else. So these are our character habits. They operate unconsciously, just like putting your foot on the brake. But once you become aware of what they are and, and, and become aware of the physical manifestations, your triggers that, that you feel that cause you to behave in this way, then you can change those habits. And we all have, we, We've discovered through this research is just about universally, everybody views themselves as being a person of high character. Um, hmm. That's just sort of a, a, a given. So their intent is to be great people and we think that's who they really are. It's just that their reputation might not be that way. And it's the, the gap is, is caused by. So the question is, is why aren't other people experiencing the, the real you? And that's what we can help. That's what. That Caradoglio has learned how to do is create this whole Britain. Just to clarify, you're saying that most people think they have a high character. Yes. Which implies a kind of desire for character, but it gets lost in translation. 
Um, and so how do you, how does KRW help people develop and migrate towards, uh, a better, uh, expression of the, their desire, which is to, to have a higher character, but maybe they're getting messed up along the way and how they communicate it to the, to the people around them. What, what's, how do you bridge that gap? How, how is that even done? Um, and frankly, it's kind of encouraging to imagine that, that you can get better at it. Um, and, and, and there's a path to growing exceptional character, you know, despite, uh, your background or, or even your past behaviors. Well, all, all you need is to identify 20 to 30 people who, who know you well enough to know how you treat other people and to answer the uh, 360 kind of set of survey questions about you so that we can get a picture on, on what your actual behavior is. What's your reputation? We know what your intent is. Generally, everybody views themselves as intending to be people that are hiding in all these, all these four character habits. But helping you see what the difference is between your intention and the, your actual reputation and answer the question, why aren't people experiencing the real you, the person that you intend to be? And once we once we have that data, then we've got our huge database now, and we use a, a computer analytics kind of uh, algorithms to boil down and to identify your keystone habits or focus. What are the what is the one or two based on your data? things that you could do that would be a key, have a keystone effect. The keystone habit is one that, that when it gets learned and acquired, brings along all kinds of other additional habits that are, or behaviors that are related to it. That, that uh, you know, a good an example is, is that, um, if you decide to acquire a running habit, it turns out that, well, once you get into the habit of running, other good things come along with it. You tend to lose weight, tend to sleep better, and some unexpected things tend to come along. And research has shown that people that get into to running become more disciplined in their financial management and their financial financial affairs. Who who would have thought? If that's that comes along with that keystone habit. <laughs> um, so there are these keystone habits, and we use our computers and our extensive database to define exactly what that is for you and help you acquire, and, and we know the whole habit technology on how to acquire habits, that's, that's no longer a secret. A book written by uh, James Clear called Atomic Habits is especially good at uh, revealing what, how you change habits. And, uh, you know, people have been hitting their heads against the wall and trying to change habits. We call New Year's resolutions for years. That didn't work because it's not based on the neuroscience of how habits really operate. Habits can be changed, but there's a real technology, a real methodology to doing it right. It's a lot of hard work, though. I mean, there's a reason people don't change, right? Well, I think the bigger reason people don't change is they don't know how. Once, once we help you see what your keystone habit is and how to and how how do you, how you to get it identify the triggers that are involved in your habit. It doesn't, it doesn't, isn't all that difficult. Well, I tell you, I, um, for the audience, I, I've gone through Red Keel and KRW's, uh, review, 360 review and sent out emails 
uh, asking for input on my on on my character, and uh, we're going through the results process right now. Uh, it's been very humbling and incredibly helpful. Uh, I encourage anybody to do it. It only makes you better. Uh, Jess, maybe maybe you could sign up next, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, the, the Keystone Habits is our next point of discussion. You should have my uh, colleague Kelly Garamon on to talk about that because she's the really the she and the and the the team that reports to her are the ones that are really taking this out of the laboratory and into application, and she's the real expert in in that. So, well, it's just encouraging that there's a solution out there for organizations to develop this part of their. Well, there really is. It's not rocket science. It's uh, we've really made it clear. It's it's science, but it's not a rocket science, and. It's something that everybody can do, and there's a great hunger for it, you know, and a great need, and and and, and you know, it it connects to our DNA, to who we really are as human beings. People want to be, they want their behavior to be aligned with what they what their intent is, and we know that most people view themselves as being people of high character, so let's help them demonstrate it, and they'll feel better, and everybody around them will feel better. And the world would feel better. <laughs> well, I got some more questions, Jess, but uh, I want to give you some room to come in, come on in uh, as well. Do you have any more thoughts? Yeah, that I need to get a 360 on myself and start running. Funny <laughs> 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 guy. You know, if if there were a set of indicators that you were looking for in in what you would call virtuoso CEOs through just observation, are there certain or were there certain discoveries in your research that said, man? You know, there's a consistency when they behave this way or they do this. Uh, it's a pretty direct correlation that they likely are uh, on the virtuoso scale. Well, yeah, I mean, it's uh, a lot of those. I mean, you watch how they treat everybody in their organization. Do they do they know the name of the person that they're dealing with in their company that is one of the lower level people? Uh, how do they do they treat them? Those are real real markers. Um, how do they react when there's a mistake that's made? Is their first response to ask what did I do wrong and what's my part of it and to do that? Or do they go on a, a blaming, shaming hunt to identify somebody to blame and to, you know, those are, are real no-nos. <laughs> Virtuosos don't behave that way. Virtuosos. Yeah. Their first response is to be curious and to be humble. And what's my part in this? Because I must, you know, I must play a part in this or it wouldn't have happened. This mistake wouldn't have happened. Um, their first response is to be care caring and kind to others. One of the CEOs in our, in our research study was Jim Senegal, the founder of, of Costco, the warehouses. Um, he's since retired. Yeah. He was active. He was, in fact, one of the very first CEOs. I've, um, and one of the things that, that Jim told me that he always did is he always told his warehouse managers and, and people in the warehouse, don't think of yourself as a manager. Think of yourself as a resource provider. Um, the, and just always remember that how the checkout clerk treats the member will reflect how you treat the checkout clerk. So if you don't treat hmm. the checkout clerk with kindness and with care and as a real human being, chances are they're not going to be that way when they treat the others. So I, you know, that was just a, a embedded part of the Costco culture. 
I'm a Costco member and, and uh, I go to various Costco warehouses and I've made it a hobby of mine over the years to interview the checkout clerk as I'm going through learning and say, how long have you worked here? And it's usually a she, although there are a lot more keys than they used to be. But usually she'd say, oh, I've been here for four years. And I said, oh, great. How do you like working here? Oh, it's great. Really? What do you like about it? And they talk, she'd talk about the great pay and benefits because Costco pays like more than double of what Sam's Club pays. And they give people, they close on holidays so they can have family time and all of that. And I say, well, that's great. Pay and benefits are terrific. Anything else? You know, what else is important to you? And they kind of look a little, a little off and they say, well, you know, I got a good manager. Oh, really? What makes your manager good? Oh, well, she's got my backside. I know I can talk to her about anything and, and uh, I just get treated well. So, I mean, there you go. That's the, the culture and action that Jim tried to create. And uh, he's been retired 11 years and it's not quite as strongly there as it used to be, but I still get, I just, did that the other day and he interviewed a checkout clerk at Costco in Rochester. And uh, I said, how's your manager treat me? Treat you? Oh, he he's treats me pretty well. He always responds to my questions and he's, he's there when I need him. So that's good. Hmm. And Jim, Jim was in a part of your original study and, and did he manage to place on the virtuoso scale? Oh, yeah, absolutely. His whole team. Think it's kind of a cute story about that. He opened up his whole executive team to me, and we did this deep dive into all 11 mem members of his executive team. And then I was given 15 minutes on an executive team meeting one time to come and present all of the results. And I showed them, you know, as a group, they scored up near the top on all four of these character habit dimensions integrity, responsibility, forgiveness, compassion, and there just wasn't much discussion, and, and so they thanked me, and I left the room, and the guy that on the team that had brought me in and walked me out, and I said, <clears throat> I said, uh, Bill, I said, there just wasn't much discussion. I said, you know, it kind of seemed to like go flat. What, what went wrong? He said, all this nothing went flat. He said, you didn't tell us anything we didn't know. He says, we all knew we don't beat our wives. <laughs> he says, there wasn't anything new there. I mean, so. <laughs> so the Costco team, you know, that's just part of their reality. Is to, of course you tell the truth. Of course you treat people with concern and kindness and all that. That's just part of their culture. And that's the way they were. That's the way they treated each other. And that's the way they treated everybody else. They treated their buyers that way. They treated their vendors that way. So. And as we know, Costco has grown to become the second largest international retailer in the world behind Walmart, a lot smaller than Walmart, but still number two. Well, and it's got kind of a cult following, right? So with their, with their, uh, and I think Southwest is another great example of that, or, you know, these, these companies that, uh, and it also kind of flies in the face that founders, uh, should have the permission to be kind of narcissistic jerks. You know, you Herb Keller's of the world and for Jim Sinegal's, they were founders and they didn't go their way of the, of the, uh, the kind of reputation of sometimes, uh, successful change the world founders. You know, one of my favorite stories about Jim Senegal was that he was given an honorary degree from Southern California university. He never, he went there, but he never graduated. And in his acceptance speech, he says, 
I don't know. He said, he said, I was kind of hoping maybe I'd get a B in chemistry instead of getting an honorary degree. <laughs> oh. That's great. That's great. Jess? You know, there, there's so many subjects here, Fred, but, but I have a question more about you. Um, you know, I think about um, in the world of content marketing, for instance, of, of instead of trying to push your product down people's throats, how can you magnetically attract people to yourselves? And the guy who started the Content Marketing Institute and made that term popular, his name is Joe Paluzzi. He's been on the show a couple of times. I've read all seven of his books. I'm a big fan. And he says the number one thing that has brought more people into them than anything else is original research. And uh, so I, I, it was fun to hear that story for you of, you know, you do all this hard work for seven years, you get this original research, and now you're being flown around the world to keynote Harvard events. Um, can you talk about um, stick to itness or or persistence or perseverance when you know you're three years into it and they say, "Oh, this is great, you just don't have enough sample size," and you're like, you know, like the disappointment or discouragement or the temptations to quit before you really get to the finish line and how to overcome that? Well, I had a particular uh, good cheerleader. He was my agent, and he was uh, the agent that we had that of our first book, The Moral Intelligence. And I'd keep in touch with him time to time. And along about that time, I was getting pretty discouraged and it just seemed like a huge, you know, I've already climbed one mountain and now I got to climb the second mountain. And I lunch with him in New York and I told him I was thinking about tossing it in. And he said, oh, and he just got panic stricken. Don't do that. He said, this could be a very, imp this is going to be a very important book. He said, don't, don't quit now, please. And so based on that kind of, well, if he thinks it's that great, then I better keep going. So I. I kept going, but you know, there was a considerable cost to it. I, I, uh, didn't, I gave up a lot of billing opportunities because I was busy doing this research yep. no, and getting no, nothing paid for it. But that's never what's particularly motivated me is making money. What's motivated me is, is living, a, pursuing a purpose and making a difference in the lives of other people. In fact, I. I really refocused my life in my middle 40s when I became aware that my reputation was not what I thought it was. <laughs> that, in fact, I was seen as a pretty big jerk and not caring for people. Um, I was the CEO of a small publicly held company at that point in time. And uh, I ended up getting fired from them by the board about the same time. So I think uh, evidence that I was being a jerk was... <laughs> pretty apparent, but I went to a spiritual retreat weekend where the focus of the retreat was just to um, inundate the retreat goers with unconditional love and care while giving them opportunities to reflect on who they are and all of that. And I came out of that a different person, came out, refocused and repurposed my life. And that was like 10 years before I did this research, but I came out of that convinced that my purpose in life was to help connect the heads to the hearts of leaders of big companies. And I've pursued that ever since. And I find that, uh, well, it's like 40 years or more ago now, but I find that when I keep true to that mission of caring and focusing on on the well-being of other people rather than me is when I, that's when I thrive. That's so great. I, uh, 
I feel like I have a little bit of a similar story. I was a 28-year-old CEO of a private equity fund. And uh, I'd gotten to the point where, you know, family matters, you know, like no sacrifice for the family was too big for me to go make more money. And, uh, you know, I have this joke, if you neglect your spouse long enough, eventually they'll resent you for it. So uh, I ended up getting, I ended up getting a coach, uh, you know, the Arbinger Institute that we were talking about before. And I've been, I've been cramming all the books down Dan's throat. Uh, I got a coach from there and basically once a week I'd call her. And uh, she'd helped a mentor of mine, this this dentist who had been a leader of mine as a as a youth, uh, fix his marriage. And I call her once a week, and she'd say how it's going, and and I'd come up with all these like self-esteem rationalizations for things, and she'd just say, I don't know, Jess, I just don't believe it. And she'd just call me on my stuff, and it was like it was like a it was like boot camp for those moral habits you talk yeah. about because she just like. Uh, I think you're, I think you're paying me to help you see your own self-deception. So, you know, she was, <laughs> she wasn't always the most gentle, but massively effective. And, uh, and so I, anyways, you know, you know that she cared for you and respect. Yeah. You. Name's Nancy Smith. She's just great. And, uh, and, and then like you, I'm like, well, this changed my marriage. So I thought, man, what, if I could do this to the person I love the most, what's it like to work for me? So then I kept her and, and started doing it at work and like it was just massive how big the difference was and then so i started doing it for other ceos for fun and then i started doing it for work and and uh just really enjoyed it and i loved hearing uh your story and that you've you've been dedicated for so many years and i loved hearing you talk about the like that you got to that point of wanting to throw it in you know i'm sure there's a lot of anybody who's done a startup we get to this point where i feel like man this is so important and this is what i feel like i'm i'm called to do and it is just wearing me out. And I just, I burned the candle at all three ends and talking to your significant other going like, Are, am I crazy? She, like, I just need a break. Should we just take, should I just go get a job for a little while and then we can try this again later? Which is almost never a good idea, right? And so it's fun to hear, it's fun to hear you, you say that. And then obviously you did get it over the finish line. And, and now Dan and I and all these other people get to benefit from from proving what, what you've proved with the data. Um, so I guess it's more of a thank you from me to you. Well, thanks. And, and Dan, I'm so grateful that you Googled and, and found us because helping you create the rock ETF that's apparently doing well um, was is one of the greater accomplishments of my life is what you've done. So I'll take credit for it. <laughs> I, it's truly inspiration. And in full transparency, people need to know that uh, Fred and his company uh, has been the cornerstone of our research uh, in trying to analyze and understand uh, the market as it sits today. Um, but I want to echo also, um, you know, from a character perspective, you know, we allocate capital on the basis of character and the things that Fred uh, discovered and the principles that Fred brought to life and proved that it actually uh, has a correlation with outperformance. Um, and, and, and the thing that, that, that also strikes me just that's, that's kind of remarkable is that, you know, you set out down this, some would say Pollyanna kind of idea of research, right? Oh, we're going to hopefully show everybody else that character's good and everything's great in the world. Well, there's a lot of people that I bet looked at Fred and said, you know, that's a waste of research. You know, that's a race to your time because, you know, bad guys win and being selfish works. And let me give me, 
give you like 30 examples of CEOs that are jerks and they outperform, you know? And so, I mean, what you did is you made a decision to set your time and resources and reputation to go and prove something that really had a binary outcome. And, uh, and it could, could, you know, you could theoretically have gone the other direction. And, uh, it was a huge risk that I think a lot of researchers wouldn't want to take because it's just too darn scary. Um, and so it took a lot of courage to make the decision, much less continue to pursue it in the midst of, you know, after three years, uh, to continue to try to do it with, with excellence. And you did that. And Fred, you know, I, I'm going to put you up there with, with some of the great scientists of our age, um, Einstein including, um, as, as bringing forth a, a rule of the universe that, um, that we can follow as a society and apply it in our daily life and our business and every, every aspect of it. And we can rely on return on character findings to not only show us the way, but to be assured that it works and it, it actually makes a difference in the world. I mean, it's just a, it's a remarkable piece of literature and piece of research that more people need to understand more people need to recognize of its consequence. And, and I think as a consequence of a broader awareness, people will apply it in their lives and the world will start to incrementally maybe get a little better. And, and so thank you. I mean, well, I, I very, mean you're, well, you're a real hero welcome. to me. Well, thank you. Um, but I just want to make sure that your listeners understand that I'm not claiming that the only thing that creates value is, is the character of the leadership team. That's a very important factor, but the bigger factor is the business model and the macroeconomic conditions. You know, this pandemic mm -hmm. has been uh, either a tailwind for some or a headwind for others. And uh, business models, uh, weak ones have not survived during this time. And then you take a guy like, uh, uh, Steve Jobs, there are other leadership qualities that are very important as well or can override deficits in character. Steve Jobs is one of them. He was a freaking genius with regard to his design skills and capabilities. He was a jerk. He was narcissistic. He was all kinds of those things. But the power of the business model, the macroeconomic times that he lived in, and his genius for design was what just pushed Apple way over the top and created it. Now, he had... Yeah, I, I always, I call him the productive narcissist. Uh, you don't ever want to bet against a productive narcissist that... Uh... He also had a management, management team that just thought he was the cat's meow. And one of them was a guy named, last name was named Johnson. I can't remember his first name, but he left Apple, was recruited by J.C. Penney to be the CEO at J.C. Penney when it was in trouble, still is in trouble. But this was like five, six years ago. And, and he had, had learned his leadership style by experiencing Steve Jobs. So he came to J.C. Penney and began to behave like Steve Jobs. And, of course, you know, everything just went downhill dramatically. He was fired after 18 months by the board. But, but for those 18 months, he behaved like a... Uh, many Steve Jobs on, on steroids. There's one thing that he didn't realize. You know, Steve Jobs was a genius and he wasn't. 
he was just he just took all of Steve Jobs <laughs> jerk attributes and applied them and that didn't work so well. You know, I've actually been thinking about Steve Jobs during this interview. It's funny that the two of you brought him up because, you know, there's a there's a really famous venture capitalist named Guy Kawasaki who wrote some great books like The Art of the Start, but does a lot of keynote speeches and and he t he uh, he was on he was the original evangelist of the Mac computer for Apple for Steve very small team and it was his job to to talk software engineers into writing software for the, for the Mac this is going to be a thing you should care you know and he compares working for Steve Jobs over at Apple so he's he has Japanese heritage and he says in Japan Mount Fuji is such a big deal and he says you know there's only two kinds of fools this Japanese thing there's only two kinds of fools. The kinds who never hike Mount Fuji and the kinds who do it twice. <laughs> so he said, you know, you learn so much working for Apple. But when people say, why don't you go back to work for Apple? He's like, well, you don't, you don't need to climb Mount Fuji twice, right? Um, and you think about how great Steve was at so many things, including, including getting the best out of other people in certain ways, right? But does anybody think that if he wouldn't have been a little more compassionate and if he wouldn't have um, taken more time to care about people at a deeper human level, does anybody think that would have downgraded his results? I, I can't think of anybody who would think that would have lowered his output for yeah, that organization. No, right? he, he, it was like he was dragging an anchor. He was a, a sailing speedboat, but he had these anchors overboard mm -hmm. that he was dragging. And if he pulled up those anchors, he would have gone even faster. Yeah. Uh, well, tell us the best places for people to find you guys online or, or if there's a CEO today who wants to go get their own 360 or uh, how should they be reaching out? Uh, well, I guess the best way is just to go to our website, krwinternational.com. And uh, it's, it's all on that website. Of the four character habits, <laughs> okay, that you identified in your book, you have integrity, responsibility, forgiveness, and compassion. What, which one do you have the most, you have the ch challenges you the most in your daily life to live out? Um, I think his forgiveness. Um, I grew up in a, in a, in a family led by an authoritarian German father who was not very forgiving of anything. And I learned at his knee. And I'm, I'm sort of a perfectionist and the sort of the downside of being a perfectionist is you get annoyed when things aren't perfect. And when I get annoyed, I tend not to be very forgiving. And so I think I'm gonna do this 360 that you just did, Dan, <laughs> and I suspect I'll get dinged in the forgiveness side of things. But... <laughs> Well, it's all to say that what's kind of neat about, you know, character, um, it's bringing, you've, you've broken it down into four areas, which makes working on those four areas a lot easier. And, uh, and, and it, it kind of defines things. And I've noticed that, you know, I've certainly got strengths in ones and in certain areas, but weaknesses in others. And, uh, like you said, uh, habits are changeable. And, um, the big lesson here to me is, you know, uh, we can all work on it. And we all can get better at it. And um, and you, Fred Keel, have kind of uh, shown us a path to do that. So I appreciate you coming on our show.
and giving us a bit of your time today and 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 for not giving up on the writing of uh, Return on Character. Well, thank you, and I feel honored to have to be on your show. So thank you very much for having me. Okay, I lied. I want to say one more thing. I think one of the fun things about this interview for me was just how infectious, how infectious your enthusiasm for this was. You know, you talked about making those big revelations yourself and, and now it's become like this lifelong thing for you to share that turnaround with other people and try to help other people have that. Like, I, I, you know, I loved the book, but it's fun to meet you and to see like just how much energy you've still got for it. I mean, like I, I talked about mine, you know, I hadn't even hit my 10 year anniversary for my marriage and we just hit our 20 year last month. And thanks. And, and it worked. And I still like, it's not my main job. My main job is running our commercial real estate fund, but I just can't help but want to share stuff with those people. And so ever since I finished your book this week that, you know, Dan got me into, I've been thinking of like, who do I need to send this book to? Because look, he's got the proof. It's like, it's like the level five leader in good to great, or it's like the, the, the numbers in everybody matters with Bob Chad. It's like, look at this. Here's a third, here's a third version that actually has the numbers, but this one's dedicated specifically to this. It's not like a, it's not like an add-on, an after effect. You know, it's like the point. And so anyways, it's it's fun for me to see that you've got such a passion for it so many years later. And uh, it's like what you said, like by doing it, it actually makes you happier to, to become a better person, right? <laughs> well, that's that's the kind of the, the secret sauce is that people, you know, I, I think we've been made to actually... Um, when, when, when we follow these four areas and try to live our best, it grows happiness at a higher relative rate than mm -hmm. the other behavior structures out there mm -hmm. that we could choose. And, uh, it's, it's a byproduct, but it's, 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 it's very noticeable when you start to connect the head to the heart. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and lots of times if you don't have the head connected to the heart, you won't even notice that you're feeling good when you behave this way. So you're not affirmed. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and so Fred's point of, of connecting the two is, is important to receive the benefit, uh, just even internally, much less externally from trying to live a life of integrity, responsibility, yeah. forgiveness, and compassion. And, and it's a whole story on how I never set out to become an innkeeper who would ever thought I'd be an innkeeper at this point, but. I love to hear people's stories and I love to cook. So I make breakfast and I listen to people's stories. And there's a lot more to running an inn than that, but I don't do any of it. I don't mow along. <laughs> I don't clean rooms. I don't run the social media. I don't do any of it, but uh, I do that. And that gives me joy also. It's a wonderful place. A big plug for the sacred clay. We, we the board are going to go there in October and have our board meeting. Uh, it's pretty special. Yeah, uh, Fred, this was really fun. I, I I really really enjoyed it, and I loved the book. and And I'm glad to see like you're pushing the cause. I think the world needs us more. Yeah, thank well, you, Fred. Good. Thanks, Dan. You're great.